0: This is the kick aspirational podcast and uh, I'm here today with Ryan Hitzel from Rourke. We're really excited to talk about adventure and entrepreneurship and uh, one of the same, one of the same. (laughs) Some of the life lessons that Ryan's had. Welcome, Ryan. Good to have you on.
1: Thanks for having me, dude.
0: Yeah, no, we've, um, you know, I like to always kind of introduce people and talk a little bit about, um, well, first the kick aspirational podcast just for listeners is all about breaking through barriers in your own life. And, um, and I I like to, you know, as we were talking about a little earlier, get into stories about um, the things you've had to work your way through, the places you've gotten stuck, gotten in the mud, et etc., um, and, and how you've broken through those barriers. But, uh, but before we get there, how, how do we meet?
1: I feel like the first time we met was probably kind of aging us here.
0: Was it a Cavorkian.
1: Yeah, I was thinking 20 years ago, maybe 23 years ago, at the Cavorkian 5000. Do <laughs> you remember an afternoon uh, at Adolfo's? I think he may have been just kicking off the access thing yeah, at yeah, that yeah. point, but probably a perfect event to do that. Um, but yeah, no, I think that was probably the first experience we had. But um, obviously surfing and in the water and yeah, in the same town.
0: And you're from you're from Laguna originally, is that right? That's right. You uh, you've you're born here more or less.
1: I was born in Newport, but my parents uh, lived here, so yeah, I've, I've been here since 77.
0: Uh, oh, cool. That was when you were born? Yeah. Nice. Um, I remember 77. <laughs> it dates me a little bit. And, uh, and so you went to school here and grew up in, in town and all that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, definitely. I grew up uh, just kind of off skyline here in Laguna and okay. um, went to all the public schools here, high school, everything, and um, my sister did as well. Did you,
0: you went, do you went off to college?
1: I did, I did. I went to UC Santa Cruz.
0: Oh, cool. Banana slugs.
1: Yes. And what did you study there? The vicious banana slugs. (laughs) The vicious, uh, vicious. Very aggressive. uh, I actually uh, studied psychology and fine art. So I I was about, I think it ended up being three classes away from a double major uh, with the two. Um, I ended up with a a major in uh, psychology and then a minor in fine art. So I was super, super close and I ended up having an opportunity Mm -hmm. to work and I was just kind of done with school, so ended up not staying another uh, s- semester to uh, to get that double major but. yeah,
0: no well, that sounds like it was the right decision and but you have you leveraged your fine art more than your psychology or have they both worked together?
1: Um, you know I think they work together to be honest um, you know fine art is definitely is very different from you know graphic art or art direction which I ended up kind of shaping my career into earlier. Um, psychology is just kind of life understanding, um, you know, part understanding yourself. And I think also understanding other people and dynamics and stuff. So that's, I, don't know, I see psychology as just like an everyday right. trait that I, um, you know, try to employ. Try to employ it to myself, which is probably the hardest part. <laughs> right. Uh, most psychologists need psychologists is kind of what I believe. Exactly, so. <laughs> right?
0: Because you're thinking about it all the time. And yeah. maybe you need some outside voices to help you process. Yeah, yeah. Do you... um so after college, did you go, you were in advertising for a while, correct? I was, marketing? Uh,
1: I was, yeah. Right after college, I actually worked for a company called Volcom, um, really okay. kind of the, what a Volcom alum would coin, the golden age there.
0: So Volcom is a is a local, well, it's a brand that was started by some local surfers here in this yep. area, um, yep. Wooly. Um,
1: Tucker and, Hall, Richard Wolcott, um, a handful of guys um, yeah. from Newport and um, built that into an amazing company, and I think they've sold it like times it was public <laughs> right. it was public for a couple of years and um, yeah really a, a truly successful kind of garage band story right with those guys uh, definitely um, probably half of my tutelage was uh, done over those you know seven eight years where I was working with them
0: right Jason Stairs was another one right yep. J-Dog absolutely local guy who uh, he worked his way up from where did, where did he, he started in the warehouse or something
1: uh, yeah, well, he, he was my boss at Laguna Surf and Sport when I was a Grom. So he was, uh, the manager there here It's in a town. local surf shop. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And, um, I believe he was the first rep, uh, okay. for the whole state. I'm not sure he may have probably was working in the warehouse too at, okay. at that time, but I've um, just heard story. I mean, I,
0: I don't really know. I'm just, he, he started me. at the bottom yeah, yeah. And,
1: and made it all the way up to uh CEO,
0: CEO. Yeah. Nice. That's a, that's a great success story too.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, um, so you were at Volcom. How long were you at Volcom?
1: um i was doing uh artwork and freelance stuff through high school for about three four years and then went, to, went away to school and did some projects for a couple years and then i worked in-house for about five years so this must have been like 99 through 2004.
0: so you're doing a lot of the art direction or art art, 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 design, art, art design
1: yeah design art direction um built the first store you know at that time it was it was a pretty big company it was you know definitely maybe 150 200 million dollar company but it still operated pretty small, so right. um, you know it was it was uh, it was a great time. We kind of did everything. Our little art department was was pretty mighty. All, th- <laughs> all three of us. Uh, but, and
0: pretty creative, right? I mean, you guys were doing yeah. some pretty break. I mean, part of the reason that Volcom grew so fast is you were doing you were doing things differently.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think that was there was always kind of a guide rail there at Volcom um, as to what you know, what, what Volcom would do in any situation. Right. So, right. And it was always different. It was always kind of anti-establishment. Um, so if you just followed that guideline, you could kind of find your way through a
0: lot of punk rock and, and uh,
1: punk rock, pink hair. Yeah. Uh, it was fun, fun times.
0: What were the, what were, if you don't mind me asking this about Volcom, cause I was, as asked, asked Mike Carter this about electric too. Yeah. Um, I was in Italy. I can't remember exactly, maybe Milan and I saw a guy walking with an electric t-shirt on mm. That said, F, and then it had the electric symbol, and yeah. then C K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I asked. I, mean, I love the T-shirt. I thought it was really kind of expressive and fun. Um, and of course, you know, that 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 word means different things to different people in different places. In the U.S., maybe you know, fuck is a little bit more offensive. Where, yeah. like in Australia, it's just a it's it's, yeah, it's, it's an adjective that everybody uses yeah. all the time. Um, in Italy, I think they it's because it's a second language doesn't mean much at all. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny or interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, what were the one of the questions I asked Mike was I said you know I saw that T-shirt he said yeah you know we only gave that away you couldn't buy it and it was like it was this one of the most requested items they ever had, and so my question to him was what was what are some of the lines that you had to balance like what was over the line what was too far what wasn't far enough did you have that those kind of discussions or thoughts or yeah how do you yeah. think about that
1: i mean yeah, we even have them at work today yeah. um but yeah back at volcom there was always a line and i think the bigger your company gets the harder that choice is you know right. so when you're small and you're trying to make noise and um you can maybe you're speaking to a more limited audience right that that would understand that um that t-shirt and yes I think it's cool but you're the people that you're offending you don't really care about at all right right at that point
0: because they aren't your market at that point so they're not
1: your market and that's what makes you stand out is the, you know the guy that guy or girl that wants to wear that shirt right wearing it pridefully and um, isn't worried about it offending anybody else right well so, and
0: maybe if the moms don't like it the kids will want it more perfect and that you know yeah. and i think
1: you know not to get too far into electric and vulcan but um i think about those companies were kind of founded upon similar principles of being different and Um, Trying to go a different direction, a less corporate direction, because at that point, you know, in the I guess it would be kind of mid 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, there was, you know, corporate, the corporate surf industry definitely was in control of the marketplace. Right. Without, um, you know, any any real upstarts, so you had to be different, you know.
0: And some of the big ones had become more mainstream at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So you ended up leaving Volcom, and then is that when you went into advertising?
1: Yeah, yeah. I had an opportunity to move up to LA and uh, work for a small advertising agency. Um, worked on some cool stuff from you know Rock the Vote, it was an old MTV property, to some weird stuff like elder healthcare um, on
0: the East Coast. What's oh, so it was like a just a retirement community?
1: Uh, no, it was like healthcare plans for the elderly. Okay, <laughs> that, which is kind of well, like always a,
0: mainstream advertising, right? That you have to do. Yeah, yeah. it's
1: a pretty classic advertising story where you get some kind of sexy, cool stuff, and then you gotta pay the bills so you work on some weird stuff. But right. um, yeah, I had opportunity to be an art director, which, you know, I, I really wanted to kind of expand um, myself and, and what I could do. I definitely learned a ton working in uh, in that, in surf industry and, and at Volcom. And I was kind of ready to move, too. You know, mm. I'd obviously gone to school in Santa Cruz and grew up in Laguna, and I was back in Laguna. And I think at that point, I, had, I was living up in Long Beach, actually. And, you know, I think, you know, I was 23, something like that, 24, right. and I was kind of just ready to... Get out and uh, and just see the world in a different way.
0: Right. So you're, you're, you were you it's you wanted to travel a little bit, see 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 yeah. something new.
1: Yeah, and I you know and I my travel bug was lit at a pretty early age. You know, with my family, and then you know getting out of high school, did the kind of classic trip to Europe at eighteen. Um, for three months, on 50 bucks a day. Right. Selling surfboards and trying to get Making to Eastern. It work. Yeah, trying to get to Eastern Europe for the 35-cent beers. <laughs> um, that was our, our whole mission. Uh, but, Did you have a year rail pass? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the year rail pass. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think, it, I think it was, you know, part of desire, like I said, to get, you know, further my professional career and, and go to a bigger place and work on bigger projects and just kind of... Find what my ceiling was, and then on a personal side, you know, live in LA, experience you know the music and the scene there that, that I was into, and and um, I was always even I think growing up in Laguna, like I was one of the kids that kind of got out and was doing different stuff, right? Uh, whether that be travel, not not necessarily everybody travels, in sure, it's kind of a thing, but I was going to kind of weirder places probably, <laughs> like, <laughs> not just you know Indo, but I'd go like I think one one year, I did Europe for three months and flew from Prague to Bali oh wow just pretty interesting uh, for a boat trip and met all the boys so I was Prague. kind of I was always kind of on a different path I think yeah how long were you in Prague um I did a couple two-month stints um I had a good friend that was living over there and so we were doing art shows um, oh, cool. every summer and um ended up having a couple really successful group shows uh, at the National Gallery there oh wow just pretty famous
0: so you were doing your own your own original art at that point, like fine yeah, art.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, day job was like graphic art and art direction, and then you know, definitely studied fine art in school. So I had my little niche, cool uh, that I pursued. Yeah.
0: I, I don't know if I've seen your fine art. What what sort of fine art were you were you doing, or do you do?
1: Yeah, I'm uh, not doing much anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I was really into like installation art and public art. So mm. you know, definitely mm. you know, you learn how to paint and draw. Um, which I was always okay at. I was never the best, but I was more into like concepts and the conceptual side of, um, I guess like postmodern art. Yeah. Um, so a lot of pieces would, you know, exist for 24 hours, you know, and all of them come down. Um, there's certainly some paintings floating around, but, um, at, at that point, I think, um, I was doing some installations with, you know, beds of nails and live fish. Oh, wow. (laughs) Weird stuff. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah, it was fun.
0: That's great. The, um, yeah, it's fun. I actually really enjoyed, uh modern postmodern art and uh and installations we I was just with uh, our younger son Willem, and he's going to school in tokyo studying art history and mm-hmm. i'm sorry in uh he's going to school in paris mm-hmm. he's worked in tokyo but we were just at the palais de tokyo in, in mm-hmm. paris and uh they had some pretty pretty exciting uh, installations right now that were yeah. um uh some of them you were designed to walk on some you know things that that yeah. won't last yeah. but that are uh yeah. Really fun to an participate in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It stretches your mind and makes you think a little bit. That's half the well, fun. yeah, and
1: a lot of people don't get it. You know, a lot of people are trained just to you know look at a painting and you know they've either read about it or you know maybe they're trying to find themselves in it or whatever, some emotion, etc. Depending on what it is, but when you get them into like a physical space with non-traditional art, a lot of people don't know what to do with it. Right. And it's kind of like just like okay. Fucking shut off and just experience this thing and stop judging it like it's, it is art. I mean, you're, you're evoking some of the hopefully some of the same emotions or feelings, um, you know, with this more installation style of art.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're you're generating an experience that you want people to retain and hopefully engage with and maybe shake them up a little bit and make them mm. th- approach things differently or see things differently. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Reframing. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Yeah. So, um, so how did you end up from? So you were so you're in la you're traveling you're doing these things i know today i'm gonna spoiler alert you're married you've got two kids yep. you're living in laguna how did you get from being uh you know being in advertising and, and having this i assume it was a job right you had a you, had, you were working for somebody yep, yep um well first of all let me ask did you did you love it did you hate it where you i loved good, it did you loved it i loved
1: it it was i mean this was like my little golden age yeah. <laughs> up there um Living in LA, worked at a small shop, learned a bunch, moved to a bigger shop, worked on better accounts, mm-hmm. um, bought a house, lived in um, in East LA in Los Feliz, and had a little. Is so that Silver Lake? Uh, right, yeah, close. same yeah, thing. Los Feliz. Pete like, like, right, Holmes lives there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of um, they're connected, joined there at the hip. Um, had a house up there and was just just living, you know, going yeah. to rock shows and going out with friends, drinking, living like a you know a healthy. I'd say probably a healthier LA life than some yeah so I had to work every day but um, <laughs> you know working at, I ended up working at a great agency my, it was my third third agency up there and uh, it was about a 12 year run total so my last four years were at an agency called Deutsch Oh yeah Rey Rey, large five, one. yeah, yeah good, good sized agency and ended up being a, a creative director on Volkswagen so I kind of you know started in elder healthcare. You're right. <laughs> a small <agency>. <laughs> Got to uh, cut your teeth someplace. Yeah, worked worked my way up to being um, a creative director on on Volkswagen and uh, Dr Pepper and Snapple, and it was a oh, so it, it beverages cool. and
0: auto. Those are big big opportunities. Yeah,
1: so we, those were like my my dailies, and then you know, my partner and I, I was I was an art director, obviously, and had a copywriting partner partner, and uh, we did like new business pitches and stuff. So oh, fun. Yeah, so it was it was lively. I I loved it. Um, you know, the older you get in advertising, the more you realize it's a little bit more of a young man's game. Right. So meaning. When you have a kid, wife, responsibility outside of work, the hours become pretty difficult.
0: How many hours were you working back then?
1: Um, I'd say an average week was probably, could be 60 um, with weekends, um, which would be probably like every other week. Um, you could be up to 60, 70, 80 hours. I mean, crazy weeks. Yeah. All-nighters. I mean, I'd say we have all-nighters probably once a month, twice a month.
0: Wow. You got to pitch the next day, and you got to figure get a it out. You pitch,
1: and you're just, you know, uh, when you're on the creative team, you're kind of like at the bottom of the mountain. So the snowball s- starts at the top, and then kind of lands on you. And you know, you're doing work for a client. You know, you're being paid millions and millions of dollars as an agency, and you got to get it right. And getting changes, changes, revisions, better work. And especially when you know Volkswagen is, you know, there's probably three or four brands that are looked at as, you know, traditionally like the best brands in the world to work for, as far as advertising goes. Volkswagen, uh, Nike. Apple usually yeah. top the list. I think it's probably changing now. This was go back dating me you know, ten years but um yeah, I mean it's it's intense, it's intense. The stakes are high and these you know, these companies are spending, like I said, millions of dollars on productions of ads and more with the media placement. And it's coming down to a couple of couple dudes in an office writing at three in the morning, trying to find out, you know, figure out the best idea they can to sell product and sell the brand. So.
0: Right. And tell the brand story in a way that engages consumers.
1: Yeah, totally. And I, know, I always talk about it. Like, I think advertisers, creatives um, that take it seriously, you know, you're re- especially working for a great brand. You're like custodian. It's not not your brand, you know, it's someone else's brand, but you've been entrusted to perpetuate whatever the brand's supposed to be and and usually sell product too. So you're kind of like this custodian that...
0: Because this isn't a fine art installation in a museum. You're actually trying to be productive. I mean, trying to Um, sell something at the end of it, right?
1: Totally. And and, I mean, I think that's the, there's like an art and science to everything. And, you know, part of the art is to, you know, be free and be yourself and and inject, you know, your life experience into things into ideas. But at the same time, not letting that overwhelm what the final product is because it's got to connect and it's got to sell and it's it's again you're not the brand right yeah so absolutely
0: that, well it's it's i mean to me I, the thing i love about advertising done well and i think in mad men you know don draper kind of epitomizes this in a way yeah you know it, it is its own form of art it's it's an applied art mm-hmm. and there's a pro, there's a productive element that needs to happen for it to be successful at the yeah. end but yeah. when it's done really well Mm -hmm. versus like you know uh sterling what's his name roger sterling will say you know 99 cents that's 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 great advertising which you know makes gives down the hives but um you know when it's when it's done well when it's beautiful and it's inspiring and um it's it's aspirational maybe and it and it connects to a brand in an emotional way i mean that's where i think lifestyle brands have really stood out versus Mm -hmm. you know elder care or whatever. Thing, right? where, where, I mean, nothing wrong with it, yeah, but yeah, yeah. it's, it's a commodity that effectively that you're trying to have some uniqueness around, but it's, right. it's, you know, There's it's definitely it's more potatoes. Teeth. It's not, uh, yeah. it's not fine. It's not fine cuisine.
1: Anything that, that, you know, I, you got to respect product. I think you look at sure. brands like Apple and they've, they've, it's a product based brand. Right. Um, it, now it's become a culture. So right. that's allowed them to, you know, take marketing that's really centered about a product that makes your life better um and turn that into like a cultural phenomenon which intersects with lifestyle right
0: right it becomes transformational to our culture
1: right like you take like a brand like dyson say which is a great product and they're very product centric and i wouldn't call it a culture surrounding dyson but they do product centric you know marketing advertising and it works really well for them apple obviously
0: yeah i mean isn't dyson selling elegance Yeah. To me, like when you're going using one of their hand dryers in a bathroom, or Mm -hmm. which I look for now because they're my favorite hand dryer, Mm -hmm. or maybe they have like their vacuums. Mm -hmm. You know, we have one of their little vacuums that Mm -hmm. you can, you know, for household work.
1: Right, and that's what their product is. That's part of their guidelines, probably, is is turning the appliance into art. Right. I think I've I've studied it before. Have it it work better.
0: I mean, uniquely better, but also have it be this elegant design that makes you want to pick it up, use it, touch it. Yeah yeah that's cool so there's all these
1: different routes and the one, one thing I was going to sorry to go backwards a little yeah, yeah. one sorry. thing I loved about Mad Men was and it definitely you know Draper took it to be you an know, degree but right. the other part of the art of advertising which I think they, they accurately portrayed was you know there's the work and then there's the pitch mm. so like if you have great work and you don't know how to pitch it you can fail nine times out of ten. Because the
0: client still has to accept it, right? They have to approve you,
1: it. Yeah, yeah. And if you know, you can often <laughs> tap dance around a really shitty idea and sell it, which is not good, but <laughs> right. can be done. Um, but yeah that that process is um, that's something I actually I, I've taken a lot of that um, and and tried to kind of integrate, you know, what I had learned from some really good pitchmen and advertise to, to sell ideas and to sell Brands, and I think that's a big part of. of being well, what is that process?
0: How yeah. is how does that pitch? How, do, how does a great pitch? What's the structure of a
1: great pitch? Oh, jeez, I wasn't prepared to answer that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, I mean, I think at the at the center of any great pitch is a great idea. Yeah. Um, so you you got to start there. You can never you can never gloss over that. Um, but I think you know being prepared, understanding um, the mindset of your client or whoever you're pitching and what they're looking for, and how that connects to who you are obviously if there's no connection between that you probably shouldn't be pitching them you got to find those sure Um, i think being supremely confident um in your idea um and and what you're pitching is is essential um but at the same time i think i think that's where you see different um nuances of pitch like i I, i've been told i'm pretty humble in life and um you know i think some of the sometimes with me like that confidence part is something that i struggle with which i know maybe we'll talk about later but I think for me, some Ryan, everybody knows you're
0: a fraud. No, I'm just, <laughs> no that's, I'm, I joke about that a lot. That you know, I'm always worried that people are going to figure out I'm a fraud, Got which it. I think is a common you know, it's fine line. If you right? have humility, <laughs> you figure out pretty quickly, yeah. it, you know, that we're all struggling with well, that. I, yeah. and
1: I, like, and I, at this point, I, you know, I accept that. Um, I'm kind of a humble person and I and that's me you so are that's yeah. part of you're understated is, for sure that yeah. is part of my deal and I don't think that that's a, um, a weakness within some other people it might be but um so I don't really shy away from that but I do think you know confidence in your idea you know can hold hands with humility at the same time right um and and, and ego etc so um yeah I don't know I've never put I've never I've never really thought about the art of the whole pitch and one-by-one steps,
0: but... Yeah, no, I mean, I, I pitch a lot of ideas, and yeah. I do it to different audiences. Sometimes it's a it's a small group of, you know, maybe executives that I'm trying to yeah. get to buy into an, uh, yeah, yeah. an idea. Sometimes it's an auditorium of, you know, 10,000 people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, to me, it comes down to, you know, first of all, understanding who your audience is and what they're trying to accomplish, yeah. what's the problem they're trying to solve, or what's the uniqueness they're trying to find. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for me, it comes down to, i love the structure of a ted talk because it's really simple right it's like here's the big idea yeah. here's the three proof points yeah. um and so when you identify the problem or the you know mm-hmm. and this kind of you put the hypothesis together in the opening mm-hmm. salvo mm-hmm. and then you support it with three great stories that are memorable and connect mm-hmm. to somebody's emotions yeah. tends to be something that people engage around yeah. um, and you get conversation you get feedback maybe they don't like pieces of it and parts of it yeah. but generally if you thought through the whole concept i think to your point mm-hmm. um and you've got a strong idea yeah. when you approach it with confidence, you tell some compelling stories. Yeah. If, unless they're, they're non-human, they tend to engage. Right? Well, yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, like telling, it is telling a story, right? It's like, you know, at some point you need to kind of punctuate it by selling the dream. What, what, what the product is, if it's not real, right. You know, in, in five years or tomorrow. Um, so I think, I think it's all part of it. I, a guy I used to work with, um, you know, had a, had a way of thinking about, um, not necessarily the art of pitch, but how you tailor things for different people. And his, his way to talk about it was like, hey, look, if you're, meeting, if you're meeting with the CEO or you're meeting with a, say you're meeting with the CFO, and you have a conversation about something, you need to bring like two boxes of files and paperwork, um, your computer, Excel sheet ready to go, yeah. you're gonna have a conversation. You're gonna have um, a meeting with your marketing director, you're right. probably gonna ask them to go get a drink at right. the bar, pull out a napkin, uh, find a pen from the waitress or bartender, <laughs> right. and scribble out some notes. Right, um, you know. So I think like each personality type has a way of communicating. So if you if you drag in the files to the marketing guy in Excel sheet, he's just gonna be like, "What the fuck are you talking about, dude?" Like, right, right. I, don't, I don't trust you. Right. <laughs> Shut up. But um, you know, drag him out to a bar, and um, so anyway, that, I guess it's just a there is a way to you know, all the way down to that detailed level to just, I mean, it's really just about connecting with people. I don't think it's anything like subversive. Understanding (laughs) your audience, right? When you're saying,
0: when, when you're meeting with this, for example, I used to sell large technology projects when I was in consulting and the, you know, a lot of times you end up with not only the CIO, or the CTO, but also the you know, chief information officer, chief technology officer, mm-hmm. but also the CFO, mm-hmm. right? Or the CEO, if mm-hmm. it's big enough, because mm-hmm. they're not just wondering about what the technology solution is. They want to know where's the return on investment. Yeah. And so for some of those meetings, you got to come with your pencil and your, you know, mm-hmm. you, you got to have that pencil sharp and you totally. got to be show, you really prepared to sell the entire solution yeah. to show the return on investment. Yeah. Um, sometimes you're just coming in with, you know, if it's this you with the CTO or somebody, yeah. you're, you're coming in with like some cool new shit that you want to really, yeah. you know, that's going to wow them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, particularly around, a, you know, some problem they're having. We, we used to say when I was in, in consulting, we'd say, look, in the first 30 minutes your meet, of your first meeting, yeah. the idea is to understand what problems your customer have that uh, they're willing to pay to solve that we can make money as a consultant from solving for them right Mm -hmm. where that Venn diagram kind of comes together where those three things intersect that's your bullseye you're looking for Um, when I used to work when I used to manage software engineers I used to say look um, I'm really interested to find out what we can make here mm-hmm. that our customers are willing to buy from us that mm-hmm. we can make money on, right? Because yeah. engineers will get, especially software, they'll get lost in the weeds on totally. cool ideas. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, okay, who's going to buy that? And how much money do we make? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's that combination. It's yeah. not just one or the other. Yeah, it's absolutely. it's
1: making it all work. Yeah. Um, I have a funny story. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we were in Japan. Um, this is the very early stages of RORC. And we were talking to distributors and... Um, we were on the tail end of a, a photo shoot, so I had a photographer with me and um, ambassador and a couple people, uh, Ryan Siriani as well. And
0: Ryan Siriani, by the way, is so we'll get into Rourke, but he is the kind of the effigy of Rourke, is that right? Is he ended up or? being he.
1: He wasn't there in the very beginning, okay. but I think it was a, yeah, a lot of the impetus of hiring hiring him for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, so we'll get him. We'll yeah, get to sorry, that for yeah, sure. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so we're in. Uh, Tokyo and we were meeting with this distributor I think we met for 15 minutes 20 minutes and he's like hey he's like, let's go to the let's go to the spa like to the bath right
0: to the onsen yeah, yeah.
1: and I'm like all right that's pretty quick like to your point like within 30 minutes like what's going to happen how are we going to be sized up and I'm like okay it's on let's go and and he turns to me he's like hey look you know your your friend the photographer has you know a lot of tattoos so we need to go to uh, the special one
0: right because they don't let the, the, the Yakuza <laughs> have tattoos historically and now it's becoming more popular but yeah. It's like, I lived there in 91. You couldn't go into any onsen if you had tattoos, or you could go to one that Yakuza you can could go to. You yeah, You the Yakuza one.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. So he's like, yeah, we got to go to the special one. we got to go to the Yakuza one. He's yeah. like, it's cool. It'll be fine. And, and I have some tattoos, but they're not as visible. And so I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm, he doesn't know I have some tattoos, but we'll yeah. find out soon. So welcome I, to
0: Jamaica. Have a nice day.
1: Yes. And, and I had actually, I have one tattoo that I got worked on in Japan um, for like over like five years. Oh right? wow. Japanese piece of art and um so I had just gotten it worked on. So I'm like, okay, hey, we're going to the spa, I got this new tattoo and it's pretty big, so I, I'm not like gonna submerge or anything. So we get there and of course first thing we do is nude up. Yeah. So I'm with the new Japanese friends, my other bros who are they bros, but like we're not commonly nude together. Yeah. So we all <laughs> nude up. It's on, no worries, a beautiful place. Um, you know, handful of people all tattooed yeah. there. So you can kinda of paint that picture. At just outside of Tokyo.
0: By the way, so when the yakuza's tattooed it up, they're like, it's like sleeves, right? It's like yeah. Typically, it's like
1: yeah, like basically, if you're wearing a suit, you wouldn't know. Right. But like whole body's tattooed, so right. not on your feet, not on your hands, not on your neck. Right. But it's way. like
0: from your where your shirt sleeve would end, all the way up your arm, back. I mean, they're totally. pretty tattooed up a lot yeah, of times.
1: Totally. Um, so yeah, so we're like, let's get in. We get in there. It's beautiful. And the part I hadn't calculated is that I actually couldn't really go in the water. So, oh, because it was so fresh. Yeah. So these guys are in the nude, but frolicking in this beautiful spa. This, like, you know, it was this, like, tranquil, like, little canals and, you know. Usually up bamboo. to their necks with a
0: towel on their head. Yeah. Totally. And yeah. then
1: there's me sitting on the deck. Like up to my knees, completely nude uh, with my new tattoo, having a business meeting the whole time. So See. the things you have to do to, to sell yourself. But uh, no, it was, it was, it was pretty fun.
0: Interesting. That's why they call you tripod. <laughs> no. I wish. No, that's great. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is, is when you're in a culture, sometimes you don't always, you know, there's the unforeseen, right? The, uh, the experiences that you're not expecting that. Yeah. That surprise and, and also kind of force you to work through something that maybe you hadn't, hadn't T- thought about.
1: Totally, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you you learn that traveling, right? That you need to kind of accept, you know, improvise, imp- improvise yeah. and accept the cultures that you're you know working within and 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 a part of. And, and people that don't are the ones that have bad experiences. That you know, once you start to open yourself up and you know, start doing things that maybe you've never done or you really don't want to do, whether that's eating or drinking or right. meeting up at the Yakuza spa. Um, you got to do those things, you know. Otherwise, you're you're not really engaged with, with um, the task at hand. And the culture, right? I, mean, I think
0: life. it's look. You're making an emotion. Usually, you're making an emotional connection with people, and you're trying to engage the culture. Otherwise, why travel? Or why do business over there? Or why do whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, venture, etc. Yeah. Um, my my simple theory is always say yes. Yeah. And sometimes it's yes and. Mm-hmm. Like yes, I will eat that sheep's head, and maybe not the entire thing with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. I'll eat pieces and parts. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's uh, it's it's figuring out the yes and rather than no or mm-hmm. excuse me or or yes but I hate that like yes I agree but which means no. Yeah, um, it's always figuring out how to say yes. Uh, by the way, Ryan and I are having some festive beverages, some festive uh, excess drinks here. He's having the extra burn from Japan mixed berry blast. I'm having a root beer. There may be some additional vitamins added, vitamin V this morning to keep <laughs> us loose and engaged. Um, so, so you were so you're in Silver Lake. You're single at the time. Yeah. How'd you meet? How'd you meet Diane, your wife?
1: Uh, on a job. Yeah. Really? So we were. At, I can't remember what we were making. Making a commercial and. Uh, I think it was actually one of the, it was uh, the second phase of healthcare, um, a job that we were doing for some brand, HealthNet or something. And so we were at the production company that she worked at and we needed help on a voiceover and I'd seen her kind of like lurking around, you know, she's a... Is she a lurker? She's kind of a lurker, (laughs) kind of like me. (laughs) Um, She's uh, she's, She was the controller, so like on the finance side of it. And so we're looking for like a sweet voice to read this, this voiceover just as a scratch track and... So the editor went and grabbed her, she walked in and read it and did a great job. And um, I think I, later on we were trying to, I think I needed like a national monument in Germany for some other pitch we were working, I have no idea why. And she like came out and she came up with like five different monuments with pictures. And um, you know, so she put all this effort in to help us. and. And then we just finished the job, and it was kind of over. And, you know, I'd kind of thought about it, and I remember looking at her, her her hand, and there was no wedding ring. And I'm like, oh, cool, so she's not married, like, right on. And uh, about two weeks later, the editor invited me to go to an arcade fire show at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, cool. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm in. Let's get yeah, meet <laughs> you there. So I go, and little did I know that he was actually taking her on a date. <laughs> For, not a date, Like he liked her and yeah, they yeah. worked together. So she came along, but he was kind of like trying Casual to figure encounter. out ways, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to make that happen. And, and I strolled in and I was like, yep, it's on. And uh, <laughs> you know, ended up sitting next to her and um, you know, going out. And um, she lived down the street from me and I, you know, I didn't even know. And uh, yeah, I ended up getting married like a year and a half, two years later.
0: It's funny, Sarah and I had that same thing where like neither one of us, I don't know if you were looking to get married at the time. Yeah. Uh, eh.
1: I wasn't necessarily looking, but I was open. Yeah, I was. I, you know, I was twenty, thirty, about thirty. Oh, you're
0: time. thirty, so it was, time wasn't wasn't good yeah. timing. Yeah, Sarah and I were in our early twenties. We were. She was just graduating college. I was. Or she was in college. I had, I'd gotten out of college, worked in Japan, come back to Grand Rapids, and met her. My sister introduced us. But the the funny thing for us is we weren't even trying to get married. We weren't even thinking about it. But it just mm-hmm. kind of struck. And same for us. Like a year and a half later, we were. We were. Yeah semi eloping. Right. Um,
1: the funny part was that the the editor who we're still both of us are still really good friends with uh, to this day, who liked her so much, ended up coming to our wedding, meeting Diane's best friend, and they ended up getting married.
0: Oh cool. So, so you didn't you didn't lose the account or lose the friendship? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> he wasn't like bro, he's well, <laughs> he I think make he make had ambitions, girl. but she
1: was all not he, he liked me. I don't know. So yeah, might've been one sided, but
0: snoozy lose. Yeah. So then, um, how long from when you got married to the shift to Laguna and, and why was the shift to Laguna?
1: Yeah. Um, so let me think about this. So well, think,
0: first question, did, did you start Rourke when you were up in Silver Lake or did you kind of, yeah. went, did you, what was the transition? Yeah, yeah, like? Yeah, yeah. So, And and why?
1: Totally. So, I'd say you know, after I left Volcom, about five years after that, I had you know, been a part of the ad game, and, you know, and I love surfing, and I love um, I love apparel, I love fashion, um, I, and I obviously had been traveling a ton up to that point, so I had passions for all these things, um, and a passion for telling stories as well. And so I started to think about, you know, I'd say, probably about four years before I actually started the company, like what I might do. So I put together definitely some thoughts over, over a period of time and it didn't necessarily have like the, the way we were going to communicate it or what the, you know, uh, the mechanism for how the brand would operate or what it would be. Right. Um, but at that time, the, the industry, as we kind of were talking about before, was really homogenized. Um, even Volcom had kind of grown up by that point and kind of become one of them, at least in my eyes. And um, you had all these public companies, publicly traded companies at the top, and, sure. uh, and
0: Quick and Billabong, Quick whatever. Billabong,
1: Volcom, even at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and which, which I definitely can appreciate. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur, so I don't fault any of those founders or, you know, investment groups for doing what they did, but it definitely changes things. Yeah. It's
0: a natural progression in a way, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, but the thing, it's funny, like with a, with an industry that's so connected to culture, it's hard to separate the business from the culture, I think. So when those types of things- For lifestyle
0: brands, right? I mean, it's all about the culture.
1: So like when those brands change, you know, their message and change the product they make and their approach to, to, to doing business and shaping culture. Mm-hmm. Um, because they do, it kind of goes hand in hand. Yes, you know, the culture shapes itself. But I think you'd find in a lot of cases that so a lot of the big companies kind of change culture or perpetuate culture in different ways. Right. So anyway, I would felt like a lot of people with lost interest, um, surfers had lost interest. There wasn't any storytelling. Um, there wasn't anything bold happening anymore. You know, a lot of things that Volcom, had, you know, things that made... Volcom strong in the beginning were hard to execute on when you're a public company and one of my
0: favorite Volcom memories and I was not in the middle of the Volcom culture but I was going to the Waterman what was it called the Waterman um Waterman's Ball Ball. and it was at the time when the the bigger brands like Quicksilver Billabong um etc were had started buying these big SUV buses like massive kind of I don't know what they were, Prevo buses kind of things, like really yeah. expensive, Wrapping huge, glossy, wrappings. wrapped. Yeah. And they had them all parked along with, because that was brand new. as this just, you know, and they, were, they had the dough to spend on that. And the Volcom team shows up and like, what I can only explain is like a vintage 70s Scooby-Doo RV that just had the Volcom stone on the side. And I think you guys literally, I don't know if you were on it, but literally mm-hmm. it got driven like right up into the entrance yeah. and just, everybody just got out and left it yeah. almost like fast times at Ridgemont high. Yeah. I mean, it was like, that's yeah. where it, that's where it started. Totally. And then fast forward to effectively, you just have another Volcom bus out yeah. there with the other buses. Yeah. And at that point, what are you really doing? Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I just saw a big opportunity, um, you know, for, for a new brand. There hadn't really been, um, anybody, maybe Ruka had been kind of successful, the only success brand that kind of graduate to right. next level, which is a great brand. And so I saw that whole, um, the, the world was changing, consumerism was changing. Um, this is 2009-ish. Yeah. So people were just really starting to buy online. Right. Uh, so the dot-com thing was, was starting to take off. Um, Facebook
0: was blowing up at that point. Social media was, yeah. yeah,
1: Facebook was there. Instagram was just starting. Yeah. Um, so the world was changing and it felt like, it, you know, you needed a, yeah, uh, you know, there could be a younger brand to come, to come along and, and um, fill those gaps, fill those holes, try and find a way to tell stories in an original, unique way that could be, you know, used socially. Um, tell stories online, right? Not yeah. completely just uh, rely upon wholesale um, dealers to tell your story and carry your product. Um, I had had the passion for you know travel and art making and storytelling, as well as um, you know building product to some extent. So I really just took those three things, put them together into an idea, um, and uh, started working on it out of the uh, ad agency office. And I think the first three four catalogs that I actually printed. Poached uh, on the Deutsch uh, color printer there. Oh, nice. Stapled together myself. I was doing, you know, the first, first two trade shows I did literally solo. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it started off as I, like a project, you know, where I, I had a great career going, was making a ton of money and had a beautiful house, beautiful wife, a son at that point. And uh, so I wasn't going to just like launch a thing and give up everything right. at that point to right. do it. So, first, like, you know, we really launched like in 2010, I would say. And, yeah. um, once I kind of took all those, those yearnings and the market gaps and I think kind of wrapped it into a more of a concept, which we can talk about in a bit. Um, yeah, just put it out to the world, you know, kind of like gave birth and, and wh- what year was that? 2010, 2010. Yeah.
0: And I noticed one of the things that you do and you can you know, transition the story however you like, but, um, even Volcom, at its youngest, and I, I'm not trying to compare you to Volcom necessarily, mm-hmm. but you know, had a lot of great cultural things going on. I'm not sure the story was ever terribly well defined. Maybe mm-hmm. internally it was, but externally, um, mm-hmm. it looked like a lot of fun, a lot of party, a lot of yeah. Animal House, Fast Times, that kind of element that really attracts you yeah. know young young males. Yeah, um,
1: it was it was less conceptual and more like visceral. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, and I think Thank like yeah. to to Wooly's credit, he's yeah. super smart guy. He knew what he was doing. Yep. So I think he felt that that chaos and that, like, unbridled, authentic, just...
0: The exploration of the idea, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was. It, that's how that, it, it kind of formed. And people just kind of took it into their own hands. And, I mean, if there were social media back when those guys started, it would have, I mean, it would have been nuts. Nuts, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, that that brand was like, you know, if you were in, you were in. That was all the... Well, you to you your see, point,
0: from, it was visceral. I mean, yeah. I remember one of, the, one of the trade shows, one of the, uh, what they used to be called, the... Um, ASR? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, ASR. What does ASR stand for?
1: Action Sports. Action Sports
0: Retailer, yeah, yeah. So, one of the Action Sports Retailer was an animal house theme for Volcom. And they just had like empty beer cans and pizza boxes on the floor. And it was like so legit. Like, you walked in, you're like, I think I can smell my old frat house in here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was remarkable. It was was a theme for every
1: trade show. That was like one of the things I worked on. Yeah, there's some classics.
0: Yeah, really, really fun. It inspired a lot of things we did with Excess because we had some big shows we did, did with our distributors. And we always had themes different than, than mm-hmm. Volcom's, but we do like Life Aquatic or yeah. different things like that.
1: Well, fun, I mean, you can't deny fun. Right. Like fun is fun. And don't fight the fun, as fight. Pat Parnell says. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so if you can manage to have fun and, and encourage people to just smile and wear a banana suit to a trade show or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just... It's guaranteed you will uh, engage yeah
0: yeah especially guaranteed. if you if you do it in a way that engages the market you're trying to reach right yeah
1: nothing I think you know authenticity is the most important thing right to couple with that but um, yeah.
0: so so you guys have always I guess the thing that I saw different with Rourke and I remember I, I don't remember exactly what the first my first engagement was but you've always told these deep brand stories mm-hmm. um, and you've done it through not only social but you've done some you do a big printed book Yeah. Uh, how many times a year?
1: Uh, twice a year.
0: Twice a year. Yeah. And that's usually tied to um, to an adventure. So maybe tell us a little bit about Rourke and mm-hmm. kind of the story you're telling as mm-hmm. a brand.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's really important. And um, and how you tell it.
1: Totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, transitioning. I it, Rourke is a little bit less about just like fun. Right. fun. A little bit. It's probably a little bit more conceptual. Um, and there's like deep storytelling. So How does work work? work? Uh, Twice a year, we go on these big adventures. We go on one trip to a warm place for a spring-summer collection, and then we go fall holiday to a cold place. Um, And how many people go? uh, At the end of the day, about 10 is kind of like the magic, eight to 10 is like the magic number uh, of total people, but we do a scout trip first, which is usually me and a designer, uh, or a marketing person and a designer. So we'll go to the to the country or the region that we want to travel to, and we'll dig into textile markets and kind of plan like a trip around you know, how Rourke might travel, which is usually off a beaten path, trying to do it in a different way. You're never going to find us on a cruise or tour or something, yeah. often on motorcycles.
0: Who, who or what is Rourke, by the way? Rourke. Because um, you said how Rourke would travel, so what is yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know? uh,
1: you know, I think Rourke is kind of like this this myth, this legend, this iconoclast uh, that that we're all kind of searching for. Uh, in the early days, the first three, four years, every story we told was about this character. So we would write basically like a little novella about Rourke's adventures in Nepal. Um, you know, about half of that story was real because we would go there and we would do this trip um, and experience it in our way. And then we'd kind of package it into this... Um, I guess more romanticized story about travel and adventurism, and in this character that I think we all kind of like want to be right. um, out on the road and can be, can be hard because he's very unbridled, very visceral. Um, and so, yeah, we were, we were telling these stories, and the, like I was saying before, the, the collections would actually be inspired by the trips and the storytelling. And you know, like you're wearing a, a shirt that's about eight, nine years old, yeah. down to Baja, um, mariachi band looks like they're playing great. lightning bolts. Yeah, I think. instead of instruments, they have lightning bolts. So I think that was a strange night we had in Ensenada <laughs> um, about eight years ago that inspired that tea. But yeah, so so we kind of transitioned about three years ago from these um, fictional novellas chasing Rourke um, to telling... You know 100% factual editorial real stories about these adventures we still build a line the same way so about half of the collection is inspired by the the destination and the trip we take local textiles conversations at the bar um, the type of gear you would need to go to Nepal in the winter or the type of gear you would need to go to Cuba in the summer um, so,
0: and you, you have artifacts, right? You have, it's kind of like, I, I love to do this personally. Like when I travel to different mm-hmm. places, like to find like unique pieces that I take back that remind me of the things that I did. So you have something really similar. You have artifacts of adventure or you have had artifacts. of adventure. Yeah. Right? yeah. So
1: artifacts of adventure is kind of the way we speak about the product and in the brand, uh, as well. So, you know, the kind of idea of going places and seeking out, you know, artifacts, um, and bringing them back and sharing them, um, with our fans and consumers and reproducing them in different ways. Um, Often we'll try and and actually recreate those artifacts or those cultural bits and pieces in the country that we're in, um, and do all of the the labor and and garment manufacturing in those countries. In
0: those places. What's the, do you have a short list of the places you've gone? Or not a did, list of places you Yeah, went? I
1: wrote I wrote I got like to 12 13 here I wrote them down <laughs> so they're not in order but we you know we've done road trips. Um, the first one was a road trip from Big Sur to the Mexican border and we did a trip to Baja. Um, we did a trip to Tokyo, Bali, India, Vancouver Island, Nepal, Vietnam, Cuba, Iceland, Hong Kong, Scotland, Senegal. Um we just did a trip to Java, to West Java. Oh, wow. Um, we're getting ready for a trip up to the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. Oh, cool. Um, so I think I probably missed a couple, but we've done about 18 trips.
0: Will you be riding Dave Parman or Aleutian Juice surfboards?
1: <laughs> we actually He still <laughs> shaves. So we've actually talked might about
0: might be that. a cool thing to... You guys, because you've done boards. You just... I have one of your... Um,
1: the Maurice Coles,
0: the Maurice Coles, who's a yeah. famous shaper from france yeah, yeah shapes yeah. a lot of really rad boards
1: yeah yeah we yeah we've, we've we'll do trips where you know we'll approach a shaper and have them actually make a board for the types of waves that we'll be surfing yeah so yeah Parmenter might be nice for for alaska i for just sure. saw
0: one of his um it's like it's sort of a long board but it's it's almost a gunny longboard. Mm. has a lot of good rocker pattern in it mm-hmm. and uh I'm always looking for longboards for the Brook Street contest here locally because <laughs> longboards and that wave are tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super With all um, and rocker patterns matter a lot. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to reach out to him to see if he'd uh, he'd shape me one of his uh, Aleutian Juice boards. I just it was I just saw it in the Tokyo shop in, uh, huh. in, in for Patagonia, um, which is why that that was top of my mind. So so tell me about some of the adventures you've had. What are the different what. Are, I guess maybe um, one way to, to frame it up would be: What are some of the most um, interesting adventures you've had? In which places? Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly for Kick Aspirational on the on the adventure side of your brand, where have you gotten stuck in the mud? Where has it been tough? And you felt like it was broken or it wasn't working, or maybe um, you know things were falling apart? And then <laughs> how did you trick. break through that barrier and make it work? Because I think those are to me, you know, it's. Like when I've gone on a lot of sailing trips in my life and, or boat trips, and it always seems like the worst things, the worst parts of the day, you know, the worst storms, et cetera, are what you remember the most. Like the yep. time that everybody threw up on some, you know, crossing mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Um, what were some of the, the hard parts yeah. and how'd you break through them?
1: I could probably point something out on every trip, to be honest. Um, <laughs> These awful. are pretty exotic locations where it's
0: not. Uh, it's, this isn't the Four Seasons uh, tour group, right?
1: No, no. I'll, I'll try and simplify it too. If By the know. way, how do
0: you travel? Do you guys travel coach? Do you go uh, uh, business class?
1: No, no, no. We're coach all the way. We're, we're with the chickens, <laughs> if possible. Um, yeah, no. I think. That, I mean, that's an important part of it, right? Yeah. I think. You know, I've I've always strived for us to, you know. Part of it is a photo shoot, right? So there's like there's a job happening. We're going to these places. We're unearthing things. We're bringing bringing them back. We're building product, and then we take all of our athletes, ambassadors, photographer, filmer back and create content and have this bigger bigger journey, right?
0: Almost National Geographic like, right? I mean, what, yeah, yeah,
1: but you have to like you know we have our own secret formula. So you know without giving it all up, I mean the, the biggest part of it is to you can't stay in a nice hotels. You can't right. only travel and you know motor coaches or cars like you have to get into it and you have to smell it you have to ride an infield or a defender or whatever you have to yeah. otherwise you're just in an air-conditioned resort you know, pod yeah you know traveling through a space right like we don't want to travel through it we want to be in it right amongst it um you know good bad or ugly right so that that's always part of it you know and and, and try we always you know structure these trips to where it doesn't feel like a photo shoot or anything There's people with cameras and 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 um, and and yes, it's being documented, but it's you know we approach it like it's a documentary, more right? Like like NatGEO. so we go do our thing and um, try and get ourselves into a, an itinerary that we we think is interesting, but um, can always kind of you know take shape in different ways once you're there. Um, so I mean, I, when I think back to you know trials and tribulations, um, I'll try and note a couple here that were kind of interesting that some are related. They all kind of always, for me, come back to what? What the fuck are we doing? Yeah. How is with how, this company? What the fuck are we doing? Yeah. You know, testing our limits. Uh,
0: Iceland looked like it was pretty brutal.
1: Iceland was brutal, but not dangerous. Okay. So Iceland was one of my favorite, probably still my favorite trip. You know, obviously Iceland in the last handful of years has been publicized. Yeah. Um, we had an opportunity to go with Chris Burkhard. This is about six, seven. It was a really ago.
0: famous. Uh, Adventure photographer in, in, yeah. for Iceland, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, globally, but definitely like cold places. So at that time, he had been there a handful, maybe five, six times. And so he had it pretty wired, but he hadn't fully established himself. Um, Iceland wasn't still wasn't on the grid uh, yet, but um, he took us there and kind of, you know, we planned this whole trip around, you know, you know, our vision and his vision, but we went in the middle of winter, which means there's only five hours, six hours maybe of light a day. Um, brutally cold it's one of the most volatile places as far as the landscape that i've ever been to um, in beautiful ways right Right. you could be in a blizzard in your land rover um off the grid you got to check in with like you know the rangers and then check out once you get through this six-hour drive um, and then come around a corner from this blizzard into a fjord that's like 60 degrees moss everywhere pixies you know, coming out of the caves, and you, know, it's, you can like smell the Vikings, right? Yeah. And, uh, and and it's just a whole different. I mean, we're talking within like three miles.
0: Wow. So, so you just, go from blizzard to yeah. spring conditions totally. almost. Totally, and that's yeah. just
1: the way Iceland is. The way the fjords work. That's where all the, the Vikings and pirates would go there back in the day and frolic. Um, the fjords just have different. Eco, it's a different ecosystem. Just right. the way the the jet stream goes over Iceland in a different way um, and touches different points of it and. So very volatile place, very dark. I mean, when you talk about like isolation and in really tough conditions for traveling, um, it it doesn't get a whole lot harder, um, but it rewards you with this like rad sense of spirituality. And um, you can see it like in in the Icelandic people. There's not that many people there, right? It was like 250,000 people or something. Sure. Very few people, but they're very spiritual. Like you look at like, you know, a lot of the artists, musicians that have come out of Iceland, and they're all Bjorka, very, yeah, yeah, they're, they're very kind of like isolated sensibilities to their music, and very, you know, there's a mystique that it's hard to find anywhere else. But it's very like self reliant, I guess. Um,
0: What's the spiritual element that we talk about that sometimes on this podcast? What what kind of spirit? Like you mean like in a broader sense, like a cosmic mm-hmm. spirituality, or what, what do yeah. you what do you think? No, there? A-
1: absolutely, I mean, I think. You travel all these different places in the world, and spirituality is defined in so many different ways. Right. Um, religion, in some cases, um, nature, in others. Uh, sometimes religion and nature is kind of one. Right. Um, but in Iceland, I mean, I think it probably kind of goes that direction where it, you're such a small blip in this very volatile, exp- it feels expansive place. It's very harsh. And so I, I just found spirituality to be this this convergence of this big landscape and this big nature right and you no one else no other humans (laughs) no reliance anywhere else but your relationship like with the moment in this place
0: because you're not like you said there, they were these people have been isolated on this rock on Mm -hmm. this island i shouldn't say rock but in this volcanic island yeah for for a long time Mm -hmm. um for hundreds of years yeah um, maybe over a thousand years yeah. and uh and it's a place with all these extreme conditions where you really you're immersed in a way in the violence of nature but mm-hmm. also the beauty of nature
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that that can only
1: well no one's gonna say <laughs> evoke you you, right? no yeah. one's gonna save you but yourself right and so there's that kind of you know and there's certainly other places on earth where that's true but it just it was very clear to me and there's a there's a, a real rhythmic nature to the the people as well and they're because they all have the spirituality where they're they're self-sufficient but if they see you yeah they just want to hug you because they haven't seen another person in like you know a day right 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 I mean, we would drive for like four hours in the most beautiful place on earth and not even see a car pass like wow, it was mental yeah 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 so yeah it just it, that trip definitely you know pushed us um you know a couple of sketchy driving situations surfing in you know 47 degree water that's pretty cold you know putting wetsuits on in a tent on the beach where the sand's frozen like yeah there's some it didn't feel like we were gonna die but it was pretty cool. it's intense i mean you know it's two hours to Reykjavik or something so yeah um but that's where some whiskey and a nice fire (laughs) come handy so heats everything back up yeah
0: um what what are a couple other ones
1: yeah um I mean, we had, like, I mean, one of the earliest ones that really kind of rattled me, we were up in Vancouver Island, um, one of our ambassadors uh, had access to a 1940s Canadian Coast Guard um, boat, about an 80-foot boat that had been restored, about halfway through restoration, so we went on a, a boat trip, just kind of guinea pig boat trip trip. Um, with Raff Brewweiler and a guy named Ryan Cameron, and who owned the boat. Raff
0: Brewweiler, he was a pro surfer for a while, right? Yeah, he was a
1: pro, pro surfer. Um, still one of our ambassadors. He was uh, kind of the first Canadian surfer to find a successful career. You know, I think he surfed the torch in for the Olympics in uh, Vancouver. Vancouver. Oh, back cool. In what was that? Eighty? Was it nineties? It was a while ago. Yeah, a while ago. But um, yeah, there's pictures of him like literally surfing the torch in. <laughs> Um, but at yeah, a Tofino? Full, yeah, 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 at a Tofino, full legend. But we had commissioned this boat to go out for a 10 day boat trip. and
0: This is an old trawler, you
1: said? Old uh, Canadian Coast Guard vessel that vessel, converted. Okay. We were literally camping on it. There was no kitchen, no beds. I slept in a hammock. Um, we had a 60 pound uh, yellowfin or bluefin tuna hanging on deck. <laughs> um, it was so cold, it was just hung out on deck. There's no bugs or anything. And
0: you Did know, you catch that?
1: No, no. He had bought it from a friend who had okay. got it, a commercial fisherman who had got it, but we just hung it on deck, and it just hung there the whole time. We'd like be literally cutting off slabs of meat to eat. Yeah, it's pretty savage. Um, but we ended Eating up ta- it raw, cooked and raw. Cooked and raw. Yeah, cooked yeah. And raw, yeah. yeah. Um, but we went out um, up towards Nootka and there's a, a abandoned, semi abandoned uh, logging camp up there. And the boys, there's there's a handful of waves up there, so the boys had. Um, kind of procured this, this ex medic van that had been left there and they had the keys to it somehow. And, uh, so they'd always bring Classic. gas and just gas the thing up. And yeah. it, it was much easier to surf the waves cause they were still logging roads. And I think they were doing like a minimal amount of logging or maintenance. So it, it, there was nobody staying there anymore. It was, it was literally like Chernobyl or something wow. like they just, I don't know what happened, but they just got up and left. Yeah. So it's pretty eerie, but we got the van, um, Raff's a hunter, so you know it was, it was a real trip. We needed food, so we went grouse hunting on the way to, to surf, and we literally like, had Raf up top, um, you know, on top of the van with a shotgun as we're driving through the hills of this, this island out, you know, two looking hours looking for birds, looking for grouse to yeah. shoot, and he's shooting birds from the roof <laughs> as we're driving like ten miles per hour. We ended up going surfing, getting good waves. They went up again. I think Rod, we call him Rod Ryan Siriano, we went yeah. up on the roof with him and one of the other boys, and I think there was a bottle of whiskey. And we're like, at this point, this is where it just gets gets weird. And yeah. kinda you know, I'm, not, I'm definitely not embarrassed to talk about it, but it gets like sketchy. So at one point, I think we're driving probably 15, 20 miles per hour on this road, like booking it. There's three guys on the roof of a van with a shotgun and a bottle of whiskey. Right. And I remember going around a corner, hitting a bump, and just hearing the the roof, like, cave in, like, boom! And then silence for two seconds, and then boom! So these guys were, like, literally, like, bouncing off the roof with <laughs> a shotgun and a ball of whiskey in hand.
0: What well, could possibly go wrong? What could go
1: wrong? And, you know, and you're in the moment, and, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere, and it's eight great friends on the adventure of a lifetime. Yeah. And... At one moment, I put my founder, CEO, whatever, responsible person hat on. I was like, all right, fucking stop this vehicle. What are we, like, what are we doing? <laughs> right, right, right. What we like, oh, Vez, well, like, sorry, Vez is my nickname. Vez, Ryan, what do, you, what do you mean? Like, let's go, let's go, like, it's on. You know, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not on. It's not <laughs> yeah. on. Like, It's about to be off. It's about, like, the whole thing's about to be off. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. we're going to need jobs in a minute. And yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. going to be, like, in jail. Like, no, no, it's off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that was like probably the first time where I, I looked at what we were doing, and I'm like, well, fuck, how far do we Push have this? to go to create something magical? And, and what are the ingredients? Is it have to be whiskey and shotguns and you know hunting and <laughs> right, right in the wilderness? Like, what is it? And
0: what's 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 the level of danger? What's the level? Of, what's the risk management you're willing to do? Right?
1: Exactly. What it's exactly what, it is. what is the risk management? And at the end of the day, we're selling t shirts and denim and uh, <laughs> right and whatnot and um but you know it's it, and it's always tough because you know there is a form of packaged adventurism that's out there that works for some people um and then there's the other right and unfortunately um we're on the other side of it um so there's been a handful of, of of questions you know that have entered my mind you know we've we were up in russia uh, Terry Berka, Russia. Um, so in your Kachaka, kind of that. Oh, it's no. on a whole other side. So this okay. is like backside of Finland.
0: Oh, okay, so you're over St. Petersburg side. Yeah, north yeah.
1: of St. Petersburg. Um, it's the high, uh, the highest, um, or the, the city that's most close to the Arctic Circle. It's just within the Arctic Circle. Okay. There. It's north of Murmansk, which is yeah, yeah, major nuclear uh, military base. It's where all the Russian nuclear the subs, subs are up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're up there and. Um, so we went up there searching for waves, and um, and we ended up in Teriberka in this little Airbnb. It was the only Airbnb in a in a town that you know that was I think thirty thousand strong back in the '70s. Um, it was the, the the most northern fishing village in Russia. Super successful. They ended up moving it in the '80s, and it was down to like forty five people. Oh wow. Um, just blown out buildings. Like pretty much. I mean, almost destitute. Like one. Um, one little grocery store that had all frozen goods and pretty wow. gnarly.
0: Yeah. so so you're in you're in Russia. You're in northern Russia. You're up by the Arctic Circle.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's this big military presence there and a the town that's been defunct for about fifty years and um you know, we go out to to check the waves and decide to kind of suit up and it's like a, I think it was like a mile hike in. and I don't know why but our bit our, a guide and we decided to kind of pull over right next to this this military outfit because that was the trailhead and they happened to be there and he was a little sketched but but not too much and you know you got to imagine about 50 um russian soldiers handful of vehicles a big giant flatbed with this like probably 60 foot wooden crate on the back and then just like eight americans roll in um oh wow completely off the grid yeah And, uh, luckily surfboards tend to be this weird form of diplomacy, like beers and surfboards are two of the best forms of diplomacy (laughs) I've seen. Um, and so they're kind of sizing us up like, God, what are these guys doing here? Like we're out in the middle of nowhere in the Russian tundra and we've got this 60 foot crate on the back of a flatbed and you know, what are these guys doing? And, you know, so our, our guide is like, Hey, look, everything's cool. Just don't take any pictures, no pictures, just suit up, you know. You can give them a nod, whatever. But like, we're good. We're good. And we're like, I don't know if we're good. Didn't feel like we're good. Yeah. So we suit up. You know, we're all kind of like it's kind of pensive, and we're all quiet. And they, a couple guys, walk over, and the the, the Russian uh, military dudes, and they start talking to us in Russian, and kind of laughing. They're really jovial. They're not like they're definitely not like worried about anything. Right. And which is kind of a little bit unnerving. And. Um, we start to kind of get going and, um, they stop us finally. And they're like, Hey, you know, what are you doing? Talk to the guide and tell them we're going surfing. And they're always, you know, people are like, when you're a place like that, they're like, what do you mean you're going surfing? Like it's, you know, it's like 35 degrees and right. like you're surfing, like what, you know, they barely know what it is. And, um, they kind of nod and they kind of, say, oh, wait one second. And so we're all kind of standing around in the cold in our suits, like with backpacks, like getting ready right. to walk down this trail. and Um, they start, like, milling around, and, like, they were going to do something. And um, we weren't, I wouldn't, at that point, I wasn't, like, scared, but I was, like, okay, well, what's happened? Something's going to happen. Yeah. And they fucking open up this crate, and there's, like, a 60-foot surface-to-air missile in it. <laughs> like, not, like, an old, like, when you think no, no, of no, Russian like military, a, like, oh, it's Like all, a
0: modern like, Stinger it, or it's something. It's all
1: old and, like, green, like, old weapons. It's, like, no, the thing was, like, orange and, like, Very modern. red and, like you know fins all over it and like a modern like device and they all start laughing and like they're very prideful about it and you can hear some of the metakonski and all this stuff going on so they're literally like let's hold these guys up so we can uncreate this surface-to-air missile and just show them what we're doing yeah yeah <laughs> like because obviously they, I, they weren't worried that we were you know anybody of, of consequence and right um and so then of course like we're surfers right so surfers are this is what we do yeah. right like we diffuse problems and we do what we want right so, we start like kind of like laughing. Like I think like one of us kind of went up to one of the guys and kind of like slapped him on the back and like, like right on. Right. Yeah. And uh, and um, so we go. Well, what's going on here? And um, one of the Russian guys goes over to our guide and tells him exactly what's going to happen and kind of broken English it points out to the horizon and there's like a, I don't know. A massive destroyer out there like 300 foot oh wow you know, destroyer like you couldn't even see it, it as gray like on the horizon he points to that and he's all tonight we're gonna shoot this and that ship out there is gonna explode it in Whoa. the sky <laughs> he's like we do this every day Wow. And we're like, oh, shit, cool. So it's a,
0: it's a ship that's doing anti aircraft uh, or anti missile kind of yeah. maneuvers.
1: Yeah, totally. Wow. And so the tone was set for the trip, and um, we ended up having a great time again, very isolated and uh, yeah. hunkered down. But um, one night, we um, this is about four days later, one night um, our guide gets a phone call. We're all like watching the Goonies or something, some movie. And um, our guide uh, gets his phone call, he becomes very animated. And um, we're trying to listen, trying to figure out what he's saying, but he's speaking in Russian, but he's like crazy animated. And we're like, oh my God, what's going on with this? This is, this is wild. And uh, and then he starts speaking in English again. He's like, oh, we got to go. We got to go. And he's like, everybody, everybody, get your stuff. Get your stuff. <laughs> he's like, We got to go. We got to go. And we're like watching Goonies or whatever, looking around going, what does he mean we got to go? It's like 11. It's like midnight. And we're like, Sergey, Sergey, what do you mean? He's like, we gotta go now. Get your stuff. Get everything. Yeah. And I'm just going. Fuck! They're coming after us. Right, right. Like here they come, and um, everybody kind of panics for for about I, mean, I don't know what Sergei was thinking. We were panicking for probably like five, ten seconds, and we're like, well, what do we do? Do we go out the back door? And he's like. What do you mean? He's like, no, the northern lights are out. The northern lights are (laughs) out. Get your cameras. Let's go. Fuck.
0: We thought you like. You thought the the Russians were after you. He was like, he was motivating for the northern lights. Yeah, that's rad. Are there polar bears that far north?
1: I think there used to be, but I don't think so anymore. I think there's like, there's wolves.
0: There's military base, so they probably control that stuff. Yeah. Do, um when you're, when it's that cold, what size, what kind of wetsuits are you wearing? What kind of, what size boards are you riding?
1: Um, I think we were running like, same, Iceland and, and Russia, we we're running like five fours with hood and like seven mil booties and gloves, gloves. Um, I brought the same board that you have, that Maurice Cole Shiva. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously it wasn't really, it wasn't as much a surf trip. Yeah. So I brought that, that Shiva, which we actually collaborated with. Those are great with. boards. Yeah. We collaborated with, uh, Maurice to build. It's like a one board quiver. So he shaped it to, um, to serve as a single fin, a quad, or a thruster. So I actually like riding as a single fin the most. So yeah. if I'm going on a trip where I just can only bring one board and maybe I'm not, like, super concerned with, like, you know, performance... Just bring that board with a bunch of different sets of fins, and you can ride a barrel or surf a high-performance wave or yeah. surf a point break. With this, the, you know, the I use that fin. board in
0: Indo as a step-up. I, I leave, mm-hmm. I've left it over in Bali, and then I just take it wherever I'm going. Yeah. But uh,
1: it's like a utility tool. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's a
0: six. I, mean, I got a six-six, which is a bigger one. Yeah. But it just gives me enough volume to get in early, and then I totally. run it as a quad to yeah. hold in a tube, and it works great.
1: Yeah, I, I have a five ten, which is a little big for me. Um, probably not a step-up, but it's, it's a little bigger, so I kind of use it for the same reason.
0: Has extra volume. In it. Yeah. Well, especially when you're wearing extra rubber like that, it's oh. nice to have the the volume. Um, so tell me on the on the flip side, that, on the business side, tell me about some of how the business has progressed. We were talking a little bit earlier about how um, obviously we have social media personas. Mm-hmm. You know, a friend of mine said to me one time, he said you have a a good, I love your social media persona it's very it's very carefully quaffed um, <laughs> <laughs> some 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 of our distributors were more conservative i think hope that my uh social media persona would be a little more carefully quaffed but mm. uh you know I think it's we're I'm trying to be authentic to who i am and and what uh what I think the excess brand is or what my brand is which is have now become more distinct or kick aspirational as a brand yeah. um but um Tell me about, uh, on the business side, we were, we were talking earlier about how, you know, sometimes people think your life is one thing because they see mm-hmm. the snippets on social or in the Rourke books. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that's real work. Yeah. Um, what has some of the real work been? How, how, I mean, you started this as a solo project. Um, I know that you know I've been involved a little bit here and there to help help on a, a couple mm-hmm. sections when mm-hmm. you needed some some bridging and mm-hmm. some support Yep. Um, what are some of the big what are some of the the where is the business really taken off? where is it stalled? where if you had um, mm-hmm. opportunities breakthroughs and, and and where's it going now
1: yeah yeah i mean the, the the business part of this whole thing has definitely had its own story um, yeah. you know I've tried to model it you know, to a great extent. You know, after myself and my interests, and you know, and also what I think other people would be into, which I think is, you know, what what changes it from just a job um, into something special that you can wake up every day and fight for. Honestly, which I think, you know, you've done with Excess as well. Yeah, I think. Um, yep. Yeah. So I think that's been helpful um, for me because, you know, as an entrepreneur, trying to grow something in a very competitive landscape with low margin. Um, that's capital intensive is, is, is always going to be tough. It's hard to break through
0: and low margin because surfwear apparel or just sur- apparel in general
1: you know? is, is a lower margin business. You know, you work off of kind of in the olden days, you'd work off kind of like in the f- maybe 50% margin, um, gross margin. And then, you know, now with direct to consumer, it's a little bit higher, but, um, you know, just compared to some other industries, it can be, you know, you're operating somewhere between 40 and 60%. Gross margin, and then there's a lot of just cogs that go into that, and uh, apparel making is a handmade thing, so people don't a lot of SKUs, a lot of inventory, a lot of SKUs, a lot of minimums, a lot of inventory, but it's fashion, so you know times change quickly, so you can't just hold on to the same, you know, uh, boot mold for 50 years, right? right? Like things change, fits change, it's it's, uh, it's a it's a volatile business, so um, you know loving it, caring about it is, has been super. Uh, important along the way um, you know I think the idea it was like I said earlier like very conceptual and a little bit less visceral a little bit more based on a concept of of discovery and trying to um, create a brand that could help people discover you know little bits and pieces they didn't know about themselves on the road and maybe gather missing chunks of their soul out there um, and discover new places new, new people um, you know obviously there's a lot of a lot of cultural elements hidden in all the apparel too. So you know, we have kind of bridge that gap between just storytelling and a marketing, from a marketing point of view, and bridge that with product making and storytelling as well. Um, connecting the two has been probably our secret sauce, I guess. Um, I don't know that there's been a brand that's that's done it the way that we've done it. Um, but with that comes, you know, the need for uh, the need for marketing and right. the, the need um, to. I guess kind of explain the idea and tell that story um, when you can't always depend on the marketplace and your wholesalers to do that. Sure. In a multi branded scenario, so it's been a, it's been a rad journey. I mean, I, I I definitely have learned a ton up until this point, and it's gone from kind of, I guess, like a, a side project to a startup to something that you know recently has been capitalized, and um, yeah, we're going after it. How, how did you fund it? Um, I mean, it's pretty pretty classic story i think um you know i funded it the first three years um from there kind of had a very small round this good, you know goes back about seven years of of a couple business advisors and friends that put in a little bit of money and then um in the last two years did like a, a real a real round or two of capital sure um, and uh yeah so it's it's been a kind of a i guess kind of a Pretty classic kind of funding structure, all the, all the way to like a Series A.
0: And, and when did you go from so? In this on this journey, you you know, part of your journey is personal. You're getting married. You're having kids. Yeah. You're living in Silver Lake. Kind of
1: gets you off the road,
0: right? Then <laughs> same you're right. Time. Yeah. And then at some point, you decided to move to Laguna.
1: Yeah.
0: Is that when you got your first round of funding? Basically, or was um, it before that?
1: Yeah, that was that was about the first time. And that was when it was like, hey, look, this idea seems like it, it could work people like it um, you know I think we were in about 60 doors at that point and and like I said earlier like these apparel companies just take it takes money um, takes capital to kind of get there so I had kind of made a decision uh, my wife actually encouraged me to just jump off a cliff and go for it make um, the leap yeah I mean you got to kind of you know failing fast I think is more important than failing slowly so was,
0: was there a size of the business that you got to where all of a sudden you're like, okay, we got to dive into this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you get to kind of, you know, I think it's different for all brands, but I think when you start doing, you know, million dollar in sales, bucks, kinda yeah. like, I think we were like close to that, you know? And, um, you know, and I, I had, I was making good money at the time, so I could kind of self fund the seasons and I'd borrowed you know, 20 grand here and 20 grand there back, pay yeah. back immediately. And. So there's a little bit of finagling along the way. Um, at, at early point, it was small amounts of money like that, so it wasn't there wasn't too much risk involved. Um, but it was kind of like, yeah, let's jump off and do this. It needs 100% of my time. I got to be, in my opinion, was you know I needed to be in Laguna or somewhere kind of in, outside of L.A. to do what we wanted to do to kind of have a, a heartbeat and a relevant place where I could... Find the kind of talent that I was looking for to work with us and be in the
0: culture you're trying to reach and yeah. be in it.
1: And LA for me just was a little bit too far outside of that. It wasn't my native kind of village, and so I felt like all my connections in the industry was down here. So that that prompted the move back down here to operate out of a little house in South Laguna and get it kicked off. And um, you know, we've had two offices since then.
0: Now your um, your office is now in the Canyon. I've
1: graduated the Canyon.
0: Pretty pretty pretty. Uh pretty decent sized office now I'd say yeah. and you're you, I mean there's a long history of surf brands that have started here in Laguna
1: yeah, yeah. some of
0: the earliest ones to some of the more modern ones
1: absolutely yeah I mean you have um, you know—every everybody from Sean Stussy who started shaping in the canyon here and developed the Stussy brand from Hobie, Laguna Hobie yeah. Oh, yeah even before that Hobie um, Laguna's got an epic history of creativity and, and especially surfing yeah um, art the arts as well so I think there was that kind of fusion of this really special place that had a history and creativity and innovation um plus adventure
0: lifestyle all kind of coming together
1: very bohemian yeah here you know so you got a lot of people that live that lifestyle and that you know live it like in this you know zip code right Then also get out and travel a bunch so it had all i think laguna um has had all the ingredients you know gotcha was pretty much formed here sure um i think you know all the volcom guys they would probably claim newport because that's where they initially were (laughs) but they all lived here yeah Um, well even
0: even though you know Head of Quicksilver lives in Laguna. Bob McKnight. I mean, yeah. um, when Paul Naudet was head of Billabong USA, he yeah. was here. Now Visla. He might claim it started someplace else, but the origins. Yeah, I mean, it's, are really it's, here. Yeah. It's a really
1: special place.
0: Yeah. yeah no. Um, and I, I hopefully, you know, it stays that way. It's kind of the, kind of the beauty of it.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and we, we we claim it on the excess cans. We always say, you know, uh, when we get outside of the U.S., it, it'll say "born in Laguna Beach, brewed in Japan," or you know, wherever, <laughs> yeah. wherever, wherever it's from. So, um, so you've you've at this point, you've made it through some of these big hurdles, which I think a lot of startups go through, where self-funded then you you know you get to a, a block because in order to grow to the next phase particularly in apparel you need more capital yep. so you did a, a fend, almost a friends and family round yeah i was in one of those rounds i'm not sure if I was in the first one but one of the one of the early stages yeah and then uh and then you were you were at a point where you were looking for that next like more institutional investor or se- semi institutional yeah. investor yeah um and uh and you made it to that through that that was a little bit longer of a bridge than you were looking for but it was yeah. but you got there yeah that's the important thing yeah and now you've got a long-term capital partner it feels like absolutely yeah and um and so what's next for Rourke where does uh, the adventure and the business lead next
1: yeah well I think you know part of it's been really cool is like you know I think with any business, there's just different levels of challenge, right? And I mean, I can recall, you know, flying to Hong Kong literally for uh, 10 hours. So showing up in the morning, having a meeting to try and save the company and get product delivered um, from one of our main manufacturers without paying them and, you know, Doing that over, you know, a crab and a beer, right? In right. Hong Kong and so. It. And
0: part so part of that's a supplier relationship that you have to maintain when you can't always pay people on time. Well, so and, they'll and, keep shipping and
1: the willingness to go, like, hey, look, there's this is a big deal. It's you know, it's a half a million dollars we're talking about or something. And like, am I going to call this dude and try and talk to him in broken English? Right. Or am I going to fucking fly there tonight? Right. Have a meeting with him over lunch. And again, you're flying.
0: You're flying coach, right?
1: Flying coach. Cathay Pacific
0: so that's 11 hour flight 12 hours 16 16 hours okay
1: yep. and so fly 16 hours for one meeting which they you know it's Asian culture they appreciate that they're like whoa shit this is important He's gonna he showed up here. I show up with literally a school book bag the only person on the flight with a school book bag with one change of clothes right Just right so I can have some freshies on the way home have a lunch have a beer go back to the airport fly home <laughs> seal the deal done right could I take that risk over the phone I, no, I wasn't going to do it. I'm going right. to go there and get it done. It's too important. So, I, you know, I guess my point is I'm sure there'll be more stuff like that along the way. But um, I think having stability um, as far as capital and direction and everything kind of uh, eliminates a lot of uh, those existential concerns. Um, right. Which, you know, as an entrepreneur always haunt you um, no matter how well you're doing. Um, and so it's allowed us and allowed me to kind of free myself up to be completely focused on the business, our direction, the next phases, um, which are really, really exciting, you know, kind of taking, it's really the culmination of, I think the whole kind of Rourke concept and, storytelling and be able to, to really take control of it. So, um, you know, when I look forward at the next stages, um, you know, we're an adventure lifestyle brand. Um, we're trying to expose people to, you know, adventurism, travel, storytelling, um, off the beaten path. So, you know, we're, we're more recently been doing uh, these guidebook catalogs that go out to uh, consumers uh, that share a product and stories and, you know, bring them back to the website, but really educate them. They're really like almost like little editorial um, books that, that also sell product. Um, we've got uh, three stores at this point, one that's been open for about six months. Where are the stores? So, we have one that's been open since November up in Berkeley that's um, cranking and um, doing really really well.
0: My in-laws live just above there in, uh, yeah. in Cerrito yeah
1: a yeah, real special city a lot like Laguna like a bigger version of Laguna um, so we have a great store there that really just speaks to the brand and has all you know custom and found displays and tables and motorcycles and surfboards and all of our products and some uh, brands that we feel like kind of Help tell our story as well so you know we've hosted already like six events and just had one with chris burkhardt kind of chronicling the trips we did to cuba and iceland
0: oh wow Um, has chris been on a lot of your trips
1: he's just done two okay but um he did cuba and iceland he did cuba and iceland first iceland or sorry first cuba we're sitting on i think the beach in havana and he's like hey he's like we should go to iceland next (laughs) it's a
0: strange thought being on the sand in cuba and thinking about a cold desolate place like that
1: yeah totally so um so we kind of celebrated that we're gonna go up and do the illusions trip with chris oh cool months here so um yeah having those these different platforms i mean i think when you look at the modern marketplace and the omni channel um strategy uh it's for a brand like ours which is a little bit more heady a little bit more conceptual like we need that storytelling space so being able to support our partners at wholesale is, is is still a huge goal of ours and we're we're doing doing great there but to add you know more of a robust um e-com uh, platform that's driven both through just you know digital marketing but also the catalogs which I love because they're also telling stories right and then also supported by some flagship stores we have the one in Berkeley we have one in uh, San Diego that's going to open in a month and a half
0: where uh, in San Diego
1: it's in Del Mar
0: okay beautiful
1: Del Mar yeah it's going to be really cool uh, and then one on La Brea in LA. Okay. Uh, we looked in Venice and along the beach a bit and, you know, Rourke's always kind of on a different path. So we actually settled on La Brea. Oh, cool. This really cool. chunk of stores across the street from like Stussy and like, Oh wow! American Rag and right next door to Best Made and, uh, Raven and Arteryx and a bunch of outdoor. Oh, cool. Yeah. In, so.
0: Is this one of these anti-mall kind of places?
1: No, it's just on La Brea. It's just on the street. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the development down in, in San Diego is a new kind of experiential—I wouldn't call it an anti-mall, but really, really premium ex, uh, experiential space—that's uh, really exciting. So we have those, and you know, we're looking at other kind of underserved markets. That's really our, our goal is to kind of um, put a put a flag down in, in markets that we do well that feel like they're underserved by wholesalers. Oh, cool! Yeah,
0: so and that's the combination now, right? It's it's not only being able to. Have an online presence and have some Insta magic to what you're doing, but yeah. also letting people actually touch, see, experience your products in physical spaces.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know consumers control the game. You know, I think if you go back even 10 years, 20 years, and it was, I don't, I don't know that consumers controlled the marketplace. I think they were really led by by brands and the makers. Um, but it's changed a ton, and um, you know, my goal is just to allow our consumers to. Experience our brand wherever they want. So if they want to experience it online, cool. We got that. You can buy a product there. You can you know learn about where Rourke's headed. Uh, if you have a local store that that provides you the experience you want and has the product you want, go down there, support them. Uh, if you really want to get into it and you know go to events and you know buy a motorcycle that was hand built by the the Rourke crew, um, or you know maybe even get some special product, you know go down to one of the flagships. Cool. So we see that as like a, you know, our own ecosystem that's driving um, our growth and taking that control um, ourselves, and and um, it's something you just it's a little bit harder when you're only doing wholesale.
0: Putting the customer first means meeting the customer where they're at, right?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's up to them. You know, I I always talk to our wholesale partners. It's like, hey, look, we we don't discount, we don't do, we have no cheap tactics through our channels, and. You know, we're gonna support you and invest in all our wholesalers, like Laguna Surf and Sport and Surfside Sport, see People's Market, REI. Right. We'll invest all day long in you guys, but ultimately, you know, you gotta you gotta help get people in the door. We can do everything we can to, but you know, you gotta provide an experience that that um, that entices the consumer to go in there and and smell the wax. You know? Right. Um, go down to REI and get some great advice from one of the green jackets there. Um, there's there's some great wholesale business going on now, and I think it's it's often overshadowed by this whole direct consumer craze, um, which will be here forever. It's not it's not just a craze, but it's sure. it's, it's uber hyped right now. But uh, I I think we enjoy that physical presence and the partnerships we have.
0: It's a combination, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I think like I said, it's kind of like this own. Your own organism that's fed by these different vessels, right? And they all need to be healthy and they all should help each other.
0: Right. It should be complementary.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, you have, I think there's brands out there that discount heavily, like in their flagships and stuff, or, you know, they'll do, uh, there's brands right now that are doing summer sales. It's like, really? It's not even it's summer. Yet. Yeah, buy yet. It
0: just started to be summer. Yeah. <laughs> Who does
1: that help? I don't even think it helps a consumer, really.
0: Well, well, you see the commodity driven brands yeah. that are, you know, no offense to Huntington Surf and Sport and Jack's, but. Mm-hmm. I think they have a summer sale every day or, mm-hmm. you know, all summer long. And, mm-hmm. and you also have brand, you know, my, my brother and sister-in-law, we talked about them a little bit at Earth's Edge, who I think they carry your brand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they have people who come into their store. They have a big, they're one of the biggest uh, outdoor retailers in, in Michigan. Um, and they have people who come in their store and will look at like a roof rack. And they'll say to my brother-in-law, well, you know, this is great. I'm going to go buy it online. I just wanted to see it. Yeah. And he says, I'll match whatever the lowest price is. And and what he said to me was, he said, one, there's rarely a lower price than we have in the store because we only carry brands that are, you know, Patagonia, yeah. North Face, Rourke, yeah. you know, Thule, yeah. brands that are high quality yeah. um, and they don't discount online. And yeah. if they have retailers who are discounting online, they don't carry the brand anymore. Right. Right. And I think so I think a big part of it is. You know, having a brand that is sustainable with consumers, where the people, of mm-hmm. course, would like to get the best deal they can, but yeah. but are buying it not because of price, but because of what you're offering, yeah. right? That they can't find someplace else. There's uniqueness and value. Yeah. Um, and then, two, making sure that there's uh, complementary relationships between what's happening online and what's happening in store, so mm-hmm. that there's you know there's a reason for people to buy at either place, and uh, totally. and both work.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the the the, the future of Of retail and consumerism, you know, it's fantastic, and I think having the power in the the consumer's hands is amazing. We're all consumers. Right. I enjoy having that power as well. Exactly. Um, you know if you want to find a deal you can go out there and find it and if you want to pay full price for brand that only is full price then that, that's, that's also that's, available well you know and hey look like all product goes on sale at some point like there is a liquidation sure. piece of it i think the challenge is when the brands are liquidating like in season all the time yeah like you know just to be in support of you know guys at jackson huntington like very rarely are they putting you know product that's in season on sale it's it's right, usually right. the old product so um you know if everybody plays by those rules i think we we live in a great place i think when you are publicly traded or have different mechanisms that are you know forcing you to make tough decisions right. over a long period of time it just cheapens all products in the industry you know same thing would go with you know uh, cell phones right or, or right basketballs <laughs> you when know you, if everything's on sale all the time then i think as people go through their their process they're like well, why is everything so cheap why is it always on sale and it just, it ends up kind of cheapening the culture and there's no
0: price validity, right? People are like, it's it's all, it's all available to be discounted versus I think when you, when you distinguish, I think that matters. I was talking with, with, uh, uh, Andrew Herrick when he was the CEO of crank brothers, the, you know, the pedal company really founded on design and, and, one of the things that they did is they said, you know, our our pedals are, for example, three hundred dollars. It's not twenty nine ninety five. He said, It's just like when you're going to Gucci. Mm-hmm. The shoes aren't twenty two hundred ninety nine, they're three hundred dollars because yeah. the, the point is it's a brand, you pay for it. If you don't want to pay for it, buy somebody else's shoes. Yeah. Um, and they, they kind of did the same thing with their retailers and they said if you put twenty two two ninety nine ninety five on the pedal price, mm-hmm. we'll yank it from you. Yeah. This is a three hundred dollar pedal, it's worth every penny of it. If people don't want it, yeah. buy something else.
1: It's not a two hundred dollar pedal, it's a three hundred dollar
0: pedal. Yeah yeah well it's, it's not like it's not two hundred ninety nine ninety five like because yeah. that's like what do you sell what do you does five cents really matter I mean you know what I'm saying its that, it's that whole idea
1: psychological battle
0: yeah but um yeah no I think that's really fascinating I think that's that's smart uh, uh, retailing and and um
1: so we, yeah, i mean I just yeah. I discovered kind of some of the, the obvious stuff I mean we definitely um, I think are going to expand some of our offerings and um, you know,
0: I, so I right now you're doing effectively like you're doing, are you three season more or less? We do four seasons. So four we do seasons? We
1: do the two big seasons. So yep. they're, they're combined. Spring, summer is one, yep. one big season. Then fall holiday would be your your winter season. right? Okay. So we do those two big seasons. We're also doing, starting to drop stuff intermittently. You okay. Know? We know obviously consumers don't shop to the season. They shop to what they need today. Yeah. Or maybe tomorrow. Yeah. Um, probably not like what they need in a month or two. Right. Or what they needed... A month ago okay yeah yeah. so we're starting to add you know drops of exclusive product and um special product uh at, at different moments so uh, that's definitely there but you know I, I think i think the women's market's super underserved um i think that's something at some point once we master men's we'll probably get into and you know i think we're gonna we're gonna start actually producing some trips and some things for consumers so they can get out there and we'll provide these kind of alternative vetted. Um, itineraries, really. right? Um, so you know, I'd li- I definitely would like to expand the notion of what what Rourke is beyond just like apparel. But um, don't look for us to be making like sunglasses or shoes or anything like that. Sure, sure. Um, but just anything that ladders up to you know adventurism off the beaten path. We're gonna kind of go after, I think, eventually. So,
0: well, maybe if uh, maybe if Rourke finds a special lady friend, uh, <laughs> we can take him to uh, Nikiwatu You know, to remote, Sumba, but maybe a little more upscale.
1: Yeah. Hey, yeah, you know, I, I know. One of, you know, one of the first like <laughs> one of the first lines that um or or just pieces of storytelling with Rourke was like, hey, it's it's just as easy to imagine Rourke disappearing into you know the Northern Baja Coast camping for six months, all feral and and uh, and leathered. Um, only to emerge in Paris, drinking Bordeaux, you know, you model t- or yeah, uh, yeah. you know sleeping at the Ritz just to shave his beard, right? Um, you know, so I think I think there is a high end side of Rourke, like, but it's 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 for the right reasons, right? No, I think right, you're which right. is it's, yeah. for me is the same thing, like, hey, look, I I love I love great things and great experiences, and those can often be found in like a premium, you know, nature hotel restaurant experience, uh, but at the same time, I think it's you know you can get just as much or more sleeping in the gutter the dirt uh, sure you know so i think i think we like to see all sides of it we're not like anti um luxury in any way
0: no no and i think there's there's different forms of it right there's there's the exotic i mean I, the reason i mentioned Nihihuatu is it's mm-hmm. a very exotic um yeah exclusive kind of uh remote luxury yeah. in a way kind yeah. of like a a safari trip and it, you know you might be in a tent but it's a tent that your special lady friend will be comfortable in too Yes, yes, yes. um and i always thought with work the cool thing is your stuff is uh you know yeah it works great when you're on the mountain but it, you can also you can, you know, it's kind of like GI Joe meets James Bond, where you know you can go do the adventure, but then you can show up in the same gear. I'm gonna,
1: I'm gonna use that. I've never heard GI <laughs> Joe James Bond, that's, that's If GI
0: Joe and James Bond had a baby, uh, which don't get into the mechanics too much, uh, you know, you're, you're, you end up at Rourke maybe. A badass,
1: yeah. No, no, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I, we didn't really get into design philosophy or anything, but it really is, you know, this trail to bar kind of concept. Yeah. Like, you know, so much of the brand is about the journey, not the destination. It's about Getting on a motorcycle, ride right into the tea house, sitting you know in Nepal and sitting right. down and drinking tea with you know the Nepali, and then you know maybe making it to base camp, but we're probably never going to summit Everest. Right. You know, um, it's just not as important to us. It's it's really about how you get there. Right. Um, which I guess is the lifestyle component. But when we think about design, we want to create functional product that doesn't compromise style. So there's plenty of brands out there. Not going to name names. that make great, fantastic product uh, that works super well it's it's purpose-driven um you can summit everest you can you can do anything and it works but when you look at the fit when you look at you know some of the choices they make design wise it's just it's not built to walk into the bar right it looks like you're on and, the mountain not like you need design- that lady friend or, or feel confident in yourself that you've got like you know pants that fit or your jacket isn't a big giant like spongebob right pants like square right so we're trying to kind of take a function and and not compromise that style where you don't always have to you know if you're going to build a jacket to go mountain climbing only it's going to have to be built a certain way right but there is a middle zone that we're working on we've been working on forever but you know just given that example with the jeff johnsons of the world and drew smiths where they're like hey look we want to be able to climb but like i want to climb in denim right right like i don't want to wear weird stretchy like old guy zip-offs Right, right. I want to climb in raw denim. How can we do that? Right. Oh, we can add stretch. We can, there's, there's a number of things that we can do that would allow you to go from, you know, your your climb um, in the French Alps, right, and then like Chamonix or whatever, and then get on the train in the same gear, go to Paris, sit down at, you know, whatever. And by the way, the Hemingway
0: Bar in the Ritz is one of my favorite bars in Paris. <laughs> and the biggest question I just had this, I, I uh, had been out all day with my son and his girlfriend a couple of weeks ago, and. It was hot, so I had shorts on. And I, I was like, I've never seen anyone wear shorts in there. I tried to walk in. I got turned away uh, at the door. Even though I've been in there a million times, and yeah, yeah. I think they know me. Yeah. Um, you know, I couldn't get my uh, crushed ice uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Negroni, because, yeah. which is my favorite thing in the world there, because I was wearing shorts. And I think, to your point, when you're wearing Rourke, you won't get turned away at the door by the uh, by the maitre d' at the Hemingway bar.
1: Not, I mean, perfect example, I think I missed you in Paris by, like, a few days, but yeah. we were over there on a work trip, and my wife Diane actually came along on the first time for the first time ever in nine years. tagged along on a work trip, and so we were in Paris, and you know we were super jet lagged. Went, you know, had some charcuterie and um, glass champagne or something. Yeah. kind of stumbled through the day, um, going to some art galleries and you know looking at some stores, and of course got to the Picasso Museum. We're like, hey, we need to take a little break here, so we fell asleep outside like any like 20 year old probably would <laughs> somehow avoid getting kicked out and um you know I, I like those little cheats where it's like where can we go like just take a nap it's yeah the Picasso museum and then you know stumble into the Pompidou and upstairs and you know have another glass of champagne or wine sure you know where everybody's in suits and I'm still wearing the same clothes maybe like a grass stain here or there yeah some spilled some spilled uh red wine
0: in the pompadour sure? pompadou too you i mean yes it, it can be very high but it's also it's a modern art museum so yeah. you can kind of express yourself a little more maybe yeah
1: yeah so you know i think that's that that's what life is right like yeah if, if so, there's certain people out there on both like say the dirt bag side and the luxury side that will only do that like, right there's right. dirt bags that are like fuck they're some of our friends some of our best friends right and you know both both of us have an element of oh, that for sure. in us but yeah those guys and girls will see the world in a certain way, which is killer, and it's an epic world. But they're probably not going to walk into the Hemingway bar because they're wearing shorts or they're just not interested. Right. On the other side of it, there's friends of ours that only live a premium luxury lifestyle. And they're never going to sleep in the dirt. They're never going to go sleep in the streets of Pamplona before the running of the Bulls and just wake up and run it. Right. Right. It's, that's just not what they do. And so they're going to see that side of life. So to me, the beauty of,
0: well, they're probably not be, going to be immersed, right, in the same way either.
1: No, and so the beauty of, of life to me is to be able to do both and right. and, and see both because they're both interesting um, totally agree. and valid. And I don't know, I think that that's the balance of life that I've always tried to kind of find and I ultimately will probably choose to be a dirtbag, but, um, <laughs> but I enjoy both. And so I think that's a, you know, again, going back to Rourke and shaping it, like that's definitely something I've tried to... Implement there was seeing both sides of things like not only doing trips to Kathmandu and and you know the outer rungs of of Nepal but you know pairing that with a you know a trip um to um you know, Scotland where he spent time you know in Edinburgh and in the city and um also time out in the country going to Jakarta and spending Jakarta is like an amazing city that is right like, so alive yeah it's got definitely like a third world edge it's gnarly but then it's got this really cool modern um european australian inspired you know culinary you know scene and, and right. hotel scene that's like it's really fuck it's really cool right so anyway i enjoy seeing both sides
0: yeah i i agree i, I end up in both as well uh later in life i try and stay on the <laughs> the more luxury side more often but yeah. I also end up on boat trips where you know you're bunking up with a bunch of dudes or you're yeah. um you know who knows you're sleeping in tents from time to time and and yeah. that's that's half the fun too we I just did a dead tour last summer with my younger son and some friends and
1: grateful
0: Dead, yeah the grateful Dead. we were you know we're intense and yeah. we're dirt bagging it that's and it. uh and it was a ton of keeps fun you honest. yeah it keeps you real honest yeah. keeps you down to earth it's yeah. fun it's good times. Well, Ryan, I appreciate your time today. This has been a very, uh, uh, I think, eye-opening uh, conversation and and helpful for a lot of people who are thinking about when to jump and how to start something and maybe how to stay authentic in their journey. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, there's times where we kind of traverse the map and want to get back to center, and I think this is really helpful in terms of uh, how to approach that and how to think about it. So yeah, thank you.
1: No worries. Thank you. And I mean, I think the one thing that I wanted to kind of express that it has been part of my holy grail in this whole thing is I, mean, I think so many idea makers and entrepreneurs they have or what could be entrepreneurs what could be idea makers they have these great ideas but they're just on one on one hand they're just afraid to put them out there into the world because they're afraid of failure and I think I see just so many people not go down this path because they're afraid and if you can break down that wall and then once you're there. Just get up off off the mat, yeah. You know? Right. Every time you get knocked down, every time there's a challenge, get back up.
0: It's the opportunity to learn, right? Yeah,
1: and if you if you can get back up, some I learned from my dad, um, you can take less talent, you can take an idea that's not quite as good, and just keep fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting, and eventually, you'll win. Right. Because there's there's plenty of talented athletes or ta- talented uh, you know idea makers that just don't have the fight and they give up fast and so anyway that's been one thing that's been really important to me is just getting up off the mat every day and going after it and and staying on track and and not being defeated by a failure um or you know something that might you know just knock somebody out dko them you know so anyway i think that's a it's a huge part of of making something a reality
0: never give up
1: Another cliche that...
0: Do, well, I think yeah. two of them. It, it is it is a cliche, but it also I think we were talking about this earlier. When you've actually had to live through it, you start to figure out that the cliche actually has a tremendous amount of value when you have yeah. to use it to get through the the difficulty, right?
1: Totally. Cliches are like discounted when right. they're hollow. But once you get into it and you realize what it is to be resilient, what you realize what it is to be relentless, um, that they're they're fucking real. Yeah. And that's when you dig down inside and like that. those are like spiritual moments. So... Um, yeah, don't, don't discount those cliches. They, they somehow became cliches for a reason.
0: So. Well, yeah, or maybe make the mantras. I always like to say there's two big secrets into being an entrepreneur. One is do the work. Like to yeah. your point, get up, do the work, get up, do the work. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but, yeah, but get up and do the Just do it. Just yeah. do it and do it and do it. Yeah. And the second part is don't ever give up, right? If you do the work, you don't give up. You'll break through eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, or you'll find another path.
1: Yeah. Or you'll realize that it's a failure, that it's just, that it's not worth it. But right. don't give up out of fear or a black eye here and there. Like you gotta
0: give up for the right reason. Like it actually doesn't work.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you do the work and it's not working yeah. and you, there's no way past it, then, yeah. then you find a, an, hopefully a flanking strategy or an alternative. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I think it's the, it's doing the work is where, where a lot of people fail and not getting back up, yeah. you know, giving up when it's, when it's more convenient. Yeah. Well, again, thank you, Ryan. This has been a ton of fun. This Thanks is for the K- drink too. Yeah, no, we uh, we had a couple beverages here. We had some vitamin V in the excess, and uh, and a little coffee before that to keep things moving. And uh, now I think it's a little windy, but I think it's uh, might be time to get wet. There's a little swell out there. Yeah, there's a little swell in the water. Fourth of July is coming. Yeah. Well, um, this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. We, uh, you know, this is not a spectator sport, Ryan. If people want to reach you, how do they uh, how do they how do they find you?
1: You can find me at Ryan. Dot Hitzel, H-I-T-Z-E-L, at Rourke.com.
0: And where's uh, where do people find Rourke on Instagram and?
1: Uh... Yeah, Instagram handle is just at Rourke. Yeah. R-O-A-R-K. Websites, Rourke.com. Um,
0: R-O-A-R-K.com.
1: Yeah, you can find us. You know, we're distributed in about 350 doors in the U.S. Another 350 internationally. Um, everywhere from Laguna Surf and Sport and Seed People's Market to REI. So.
0: Beam in Japan. We're not in Beams. We're not, okay. in, beams. But, we're not um, in Beams. Sorry. I've seen your stuff in Japan.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, we have business in Japan. Yeah. Um, we're, we're out there in a handful of, uh, kind of about 25 doors there. Some okay. outdoor stores, some surf shops. Um, yeah.
0: Cool. There. Well, um, thank you. And, uh, you know, what I was about to say is, you know, kick aspirational is not a, a spectator sport. We like people to get engaged, ask questions. Hope it's okay if people send you some questions. 100%, yeah. Um, and uh, whatever you do this week please get out there. Please do the work. Please don't quit and be kick aspirational.